Welcome to the PivotCast. This episode was recorded on March 21st, 2018 at the Transact Club. This episode features readings from Bo Dixon, Bardia Sinai, Jim Johnstone, and Danila Botha. Just so you know, this episode contains some sexual content and mature themes. Listener's discretion is advised. So I'm very excited to bring up Jim Johnstone. Uh, Jim is a Canadian poet, editor, and critic. He's the author of five books of poetry, including The Chemical Life with Vehicle Press 2017, Dog Ear Vehicle 2014. He's also the recipient of a CBC Literary Award, the Fiddlehead's Ralph Gustafson Poetry Prize, and Poetry Editor's Prize for Book Reviewing. Johnstone is currently the poetry editor at Palimpsest Press, and my editor, and an associate editor at Representative Poetry Online. He lives in Toronto. Self-portrait as anything at any cost. Consumed by greed, even my family doesn't recognize me. Eyes set close, prey squared up and rays unrolled like film from a long-distance camera. Developed, mania splits the mind's roof, the sclera where I swoop down for a look, swoop down to feed on anything at any cost. Lost love, the furnace made hot by another's words. Square pupils stilled until the seas part, part and parcel with what I've become. Parasite, threadworm, treacle-laced tentacles licking the dirt. It's plain I'm desperate, slaver for more, slobber to appear everywhere. Hail, helmeting the world elementally. Each time I exhale, I unlearn land, sea, and air, the sword iris thrashing the heath until gluttonous guts spill and consequence, always dependable, stoops like a body bent over its walking stick. Done to a turn, done too soon, done to death. So it's really nice to see all of you here. I'm going to be reading a, a few poems from my most recent book, The Chemical Life. Um, the book, as the title um, hints at, is, uh, is about uh, chemicals, and it's about mental illness and anxiety disorder, which I've suffered from for about 20 years and been medicated for. So there's several poems in this book that um, begin, or are titled, with drug names, and I'm going to start with one of those now. This is a poem called Alprazolam, which is more commonly known as Xanax, which is a central nervous system depressant, and this is about the first time that I took Alprazolam. My first time prone in the backseat of a car, skin horripilating as if it had been kissed and funneled away in a storm, aggregate of instinct and force, under pressure native to a bomb. I try my muscles, try harnessing the current blunted by the road, servant mastered by departure, opposite the new spine expanding from the blacktop's arc. Nothing. Around each bend, the continuum persists. False horizon, 
second skin, the meek inheriting the sins of the well-healed. What heals once the threat ahead has revealed its weaponry? My last stand and inability to stand up, stand my ground, the roots hold, less present the more time we spend together, bound by gravity alone. So along with the chemicals, this book is a, is a book of relationships. And um, this next poem I'm going to read is actually about the heritability of illness and my relationship with my father. It's called Vesica Piscis. Iron lung, the bifurcation of a scorpion's tail. Viewed in thirds, venom extends past the knuckle on my father's ring finger spreads until it's closer than it appears. Why won't he listen instead of repeating, this is pain, and this is pain, and this is pain? We hardly know each other, have never shown weakness, not convinced of its existence despite our privilege. On second inspection, it was a spider that grazed him, legs locked off in the midst of a fit. The only scorpions we've known were kept as pets, as minstrelsy, appendages that mimicked faces beneath their masks. Just as quickly as weakness appears, it snaps back. No breathing apparatus, no venom, only a victim asking for a pill, or why aren't my pills where I left them? If you think I'm ungrateful, try being betrayed by the orthodoxy, your children, and everyone else who doubts the scorpion's malice. After the fact. So the next poem I'm going to read is, is also another chemical poem, but it's a, it's a poem of relationships too. Um, it's called Venlafaxine, and it's about Mark de Severio and, and our relationship. When Mark lived here in Toronto, we spent a lot of time on Roncesvilles and in Sororan Avenue Park and a lot of time listening to records together. Uh, so this is for Mark in, uh, in Brotherhood. This is Venlafaxine. The needle dropped out of habit, tongue interlocking with a tooth-cut groove. On Roncesvilles, before command reinforced our fear of shame, We'd circle Sororan Avenue Park like wolves loosed from the infirmary. The dame's rockets were armed with blossoms, and because we were free to fill in the field's texture, its grass and grain, I'd slide discs from Polly's sleeves as my brother cased the corner where moths lined the gates like lookouts beating through an unchanged city. Before the caps down to keep us more us, the gates were peacock blue. The blues rerun. Each note held where an ocean threatened to overthrow the stylus mid-song. Tidal flats diminishing our senses, our sense of self. Painted with a too small hand, you can see how brush strokes overwhelm the mind, the cortex questioning, are we not? Are we not more than the first word and the last? Whoever set our interrogation to consciousness, set it on the LP we mistook for landscape, set it with recurring strain, dizziness overwhelming the parks round. Curfew. Tonight I'll move over shared ground, my mind free to feel. 
free will rippling out like shark gills. So I always like to break up my readings uh, with, with a cover poem. And I had the privilege of um, editing The Essential D.G. Jones for Porcupine's Quill a few years ago. Um, unfortunately, Doug died while we were um, making this book. Uh, so I'd like to read my, my favorite poem of his. And it's a poem that, that sort of serves as um, an elegy for him as well, I think. Uh, it's something called The Perishing Bird. The mind is not its own place, except in hell. It must adjust, even when the place is known. Only time will tell the mind what to think, what birds to place on what boughs. The catbird crying, me, me, in a dry, hot bush. At night, the owl crying, who, in a distant wood. All else is an infernal shade where the family trees gather their antique nightingales and the ill will flowers in the leaves. For hell's the Lord's bijouterie, a Byzantine world where the clockwork birds and the golden bees eternally repeat what the heart once felt the mind conceived. For the mind in time is a perishing bird. It sings and is still. It comes and goes like the butterflies who visit the hill. The cries of the children come on the wind and are gone. The wild bees come and the clouds. And the mind is not a place at all, but a harmony of now. The necessary angel slapping flies in its own sweat. Cocking its head to the wind, it cries, who me, who me? And whatever its answer, it forgets. It is radiant night where time begets the sun, the flowers, Nanabozo's gift, mosquitoes who disturb my sleep, and everything else. So I'm going to do one more from The Chemical Life, but it's a poem in, in eight parts. And uh, I pointed out Mark in the crowd, and uh, I'd like to get to dedicate this to Shane Nielsen. Uh, who's here from Oakville tonight, and I really appreciate him coming all this way. Um, and uh, I dedicate this th to him because really uh, Shane edited a lot of this book, and he made this poem a lot better and, uh, and leaned on me to, to improve it. Uh, it's a story. It's a, it's, it's a story from my teenage years, uh, a tragic one where, where I had a friend. Uh, he was really more of a drug dealer. And uh, he, he would deal us acid, and one day he was chased by the police and put a hundred tabs down his pants, and uh, with, with quite tragic consequences. He didn't die, but it, it has affected the, the rest of his life. Um, and it got me thinking of a story from Ovid's Metamorphoses, and it's the story of uh, Odysseus sailing to the island of Crete, where he meets Circe. And Circe bewitches his crew by giving them a drug, a drug called Molly. And um, to break the spell, Odysseus has to leave a crew member as a sacrifice with Circe. And so this friend um, was sort of our sacrifice to show us the consequences of some of the things that we were doing. This is called Ovid's Metamorphoses 14, 223 to 319. I came to next to the guest house. 
Alex handing me a copy of Modern Man as we took in the first nude we'd ever seen. The pages stuttered, identical bodies distinguished by setting, pose, the fingers of boys, whorled in Circe's ink-smeared anatomy, sacred heart, vasculature, Alex and I transfixed, sitting stock still as she bled out. Without clothes, we were different. Offset at the waist, Circe's skin fixed in laminate, cuffed, cold, more animal than our classmates standing ten-figured and ten-toed like unwanted dogs. They crouched, cannibals masking the stoop with pictures of women who resembled saints we were told could save us as we turned towards new idols, their hair crowning like waterfalls. I asked, let the sun burn my eyes, let it burn my back. If change were to come, it would come unnoticed, reddening my sight as smoke filled the parking lot behind the quarry. Now 14, weed demon inhaling the sky, I hungered for oblivion before I knew it as an island of housing tracks that concealed the dead, afternoons spent crossing in and out of sedition. Day parole. Restraint sapped by an adrenal spell. Why not get high? Hash on hot knives, acid's bristling tongue wagging where my friends surrendered to mutation. Long snouts, the hair of swine, war paint bulging over wine-stained hides. Two tabs and I'd eat my entire family. The twig and berry coverings that defined our colony. Freebasing, bottomed out in a trough. Seen from a distance, each trip came on like a fever. Injury and infection, their blessings limiting our capacity to alter the future. Tending to the ill, only Alex was left to witness the retreat of the dragon's tail, the blast and spray of need foaming in the corners of its mouth. Our mouths, brothers and sisters in the word, and the word no more than hunger. And when change came, it came with a crossbow's bolt. Alex in the corner throwing shade, a quiver of police pulled from an unmarked van. He ran, a hundred tabs of LSD jammed against the hyperbaric chamber of his chest, and later in custody down the front of his pants. Dealers, defenders, friends, we were blotted by his sacred hand. He asked, let it sear through my tights, I'll feel wide open. Alone, twitching while a flashlight was held to the dark of his face. He'd hear us laugh, call out, our true bodies restored, replaying the first image he'd known. Circe, regal, flowering, spread-eagled where they'd wed. She hovered, the remains of the day receding, leashed to the head of a bird. Some hallucinations are stronger than others. The blue of $5 bills become water, become waves, powder rimming the paper's edge like salt seasoning a glass. When we're finished inhaling, we'll print more. When we've finished inhaling, our money will bear the face of a new king, nettles and flame extending from his brow, Alex grinning from a fast food crown.
I'm going to do one more. I normally don't read new poems, um, but I said goodbye to my grandfather a few weeks ago, and I wrote something for him, and so it felt appropriate to read it tonight. This is called Three Sons. At the house in Alamosa, my grandfather would vanish in naval photographs. He was one of a hundred men pictured on a destroyer, and though cannon fire had taken the hearing in his right ear, there was no evidence he'd ever been on board. I was given his name, as my father had been, and without the expectation that I'd become one who'd name as well, ordinal. There were so many Jims in the family, the others took to calling me Diego. Spanish for supplanter, I never assumed there'd be anyone to replace. The men in front of me had always been loud, roared in the middle of conversation, and if conversation, as if conversation could stave off the outside world, became even louder after their words lulled me to sleep. In all the years I knew him, my grandfather was free. With no need to be seen, he'd disappear at Sleepy Hollow along the edge of the second tee, roaming the long grass for range balls as if the future was more important than the game he was currently playing. Later, Alamosa sold, and I stopped meeting him at the course, though it wasn't for lack of time as much as shame, my love of words ending our line. It was my brother who let slip, pouring scotch into a glass of ice at our last Christmas, that the liquor might not be the real thing. My grandfather frequently mixed Canadian mist into bottles of old Pulteney to serve guests. And that he could be any of the men, photographed in the family album, taped down and floating in the middle of an actionless ocean. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for that. We're just going to keep it moving, because after this, we're going to take a break, calm d'habitude, and then come back with our final two readers. Danila Botta is a fiction writer based in Toronto. Born in Johannesburg, South Africa, she has also lived in Israel and in Nova Scotia. Her first collection of short stories, Got No Secrets, was praised by the Globe and Mail, the Chronicle Herald, and the Cape Town Times. Her debut novel, Too Much on the Inside, was shortlisted for the 2016 Relit Award and won a Book Excellence Award for Contemporary Novel. Her critically acclaimed sophomore collection of short stories, For All the Men and Some of the Women I've Known, was named a finalist for the 2017 Trillium Awards and the Vine Awards for Canadian Jewish Literature. She is currently pursuing an MFA in Creative Writing at Guelph University. She is also working on her second novel and on a new collection of short stories. Please welcome Danila Bota. Thanks so much for having me, Kinesia Michelle. It's nice to be reading here tonight. Um, that's such a beautiful reading. It's always, I feel like I've been so lucky with the tour for, for all the men because I've gotten to read with such amazing writers and I've gotten to be in the room with such amazing writers who are here tonight. So I'm super excited to be here. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from a story called The Moment Before You Want More Happiness. I was at my husband's office Christmas party two weeks ago, knocking back candy cane cocktails and eggnog martinis, 
hovering between being comfortably toasted and falling on my face drunk. One of the interns, Alyssa, I think, asked if she could take a picture of my husband and me. She had wild, curly hair piled on the top of her head like tumbleweeds, and this big, gooey smile, the kind usually reserved for watching baby pandas at the zoo. Fraser was standing behind me, half holding me up with his, harm, with his arm wrapped around my waist. Alyssa was about 19 and looked at us with this mix of envy and awe. She told us we were really cute together, and I thanked her and told her we were about a month away from our anniversary. Two years, I told her when she asked. I watched her eyes trail Fraser as he turned away to talk to one of his colleagues' husbands. Alyssa's eyes lingered for a little too long on his ass. Women checked him out every day. It was always weird to think about how easily Fraser could replace me if he wanted to. I tried to push the thought out of my head. Alyssa leaned in close and asked me what it was like to be married. It's really great, I said, to have someone who's always there. As if on cue, Fraser turned around to look at me. Was your wedding day like the best day of your life? She asked me. I thought about it. Fraser proposed to me three days after a blow-up. Things had been building up and we'd been fighting, then freezing each other out. We slept as far apart as we could on opposite ends of the bed. When Fraser and I met, he was actually married to someone else. He was working out on the rowing machine next to my treadmill at the gym. I got off after a 20-minute run and stretched. He offered to show me how to use some free weights to get more muscle definition. It turned out he was a software engineer. He and his business partner were in the process of selling one of his programs to a huge company. He was cute, and he seemed like a good guy. We talked and flirted. Somehow I just knew that I could trust him. He offered to give me a ride home, and since it turned out that we lived in the same building, he invited me over. It's so weird to have a girl I'm attracted to here, he said. It's weird to even be attracted to someone else. I smiled. He told me he met his wife when they were 18, in their first year of university. They got married two years later near the lake with all their family and friends, which seemed really romantic, he said. When they were students, it all worked, but as soon as he graduated, he started working full-time and she didn't. She used to be so energetic and outgoing, he said, and then all of a sudden, I got this great job and she was happy to sit on the couch all day watching TV. He paid off both of their student loans and became increasingly resentful. A year and a half ago, he said, she found out that she was pregnant. She told him she was still on the pill, but he found, out, he found two full boxes in the bathroom drawer and realized that she'd stopped taking them. I just wish she'd been honest, he said, and sighed. I nodded. That is very deceptive of her, I said. Sorry, it's so hard to read this with a straight face. I've been thinking a lot about everything that's been going on in the world and a lot about internalized misogyny. And it's, it's interesting to be reading stories like this at a time like this, at this time that we're living in right now. I always wanted to be a father, he said, his eyes melting as he showed me some framed photos of his daughter. Her name was Marielle, and she was beautiful. It was clear from his expression and tone how much he loved her. I'd known I wanted to be a mom since I was about eight. My parents had told me the, day, the year before that that I was adopted and that my real parents lived in Scotland. I knew that I wanted to have kids one day and that no matter what, I would never give them up. Fraser's wife was studying with her family up north for a few weeks, was staying with her family up north for a few weeks, trying to reevaluate their marriage. He knew that he wasn't interested in trying to salvage it anymore. I haven't been with her in more than a year, he said. I'm trying not to feel guilty about it.
I shrugged. I could see that she was gone now. I didn't really care as long as it was really over. Everything about her changed, her personality, even her looks, he continued. She used to be so kind, and all of a sudden she was yelling all the time. She became so insecure and needy. He paused. She gained close to 100 pounds because of postpartum depression. Wow, I said. I'd never had a baby, but it seemed like a lot. She must have looked like a different person. Yep. She used to have a body type similar to yours, actually. I mean, he paused and checked me out. Not as beautiful as you, obviously, but similar. I used to find her attractive, but all of a sudden she had three rolls of back fat. It was like watching Bambi turn into a bull. I stifled a giggle. There was something so grotesque about it that it was funny. I liked how straight-talking he was. People were always telling me that I sized them up harshly. I kind of liked that we were the same. He stopped. I'm sorry to lay all of, the, all of this on you like this. You don't even know me. I patted his back. I like your honesty, I said, and I'm happy that you can feel like you can be yourself. He smiled and squeezed my hand. I knew you were special from the second I saw you, he said. It sounded like such a line, and I thought it was, but I secretly hoped that it was true. I had a good feeling about you too, I said, and he reached over and kissed me. We started making out, and he got more and more aggressive. He grabbed the collar of my shirt so hard that it ripped a little. He bit my neck so hard he left teeth marks. I'd never been so turned on in my life. We didn't sleep together the first night, but I fantasized and thought about it for days. When we finally got together, it was by far the best sex I'd ever had in my life. He finally left her about two months after that. After three more months, we moved in together. It took another two years for their divorce to finalize. We talked about getting married and having our own kids, but it took another four years for him to ask me to marry him. Marielle lives with us three days a week and every other weekend. Fraser wanted me to bond with her, and in the beginning, a lot of our dates involved babysitting. We dressed her in her winter coat and took her to the park. We poured her apple juice and fed her goldfish crackers and watched Sesame Street with her. Every outing in the first six months felt like a test to make sure that I could really be a good stepmom. Luckily, I fell in love with her right away. She has eyes the color of hazelnuts. When Marielle giggles, she throws her head back, her belly jiggles, and her eyes narrow into tiny setting suns. Sometimes people tell us we look alike. When people I hardly know at work or the gym refer to her as my daughter, I don't correct them. Fraser likes that we seem like a normal family. We had a destination wedding in Puerto Vallarta. The sand was the color of yeast just before you mix it into batter. It was soft as, confe as confectioner sugar under my heels. I couldn't stop twirling, flipping my skirt up like a flapper, grinning like an idiot. It was finally happening. We were finally going to stop feeling like an affair and start feeling like a legitimate couple. My dress was a shiny white satin slip. Fraser wore a white linen shirt, jeans, and a straw cowboy hat. My wedding band had a small diamond. Fraser always said that he loved my small hands. He said that he took Mariel with him and she helped him choose it. She wore a white lace dress and threw rose petals as, he, as she walked down the aisle. We had a Catholic ceremony done by a guy named Carlos who kept saying his bees like V's. Bethany, he called me. I'm very excited, I said at one point giggling, but he didn't understand. I glanced at Alyssa, watching her eyeball other couples, and I wanted to hug her. I liked being friends with single people. I had single girlfriends from work over a while ago, and we sat around smoking weed, me and Fraser and them, listening to Green Day in our room. 
Our bed seated five or six easily. Frasier was perfect when they were around sweet, but not too demonstrative so that they didn't feel left out. People were always telling us what a chilled out couple we were, how easy it was to be around us without feeling like a third wheel. They always asked Frasier if he had any friends for them. They asked me how we met, and I could see the envy in, his, in their eyes, which I loved. It made me feel even luckier to have him. A guy everyone wanted or lots of women wouldn't mind was mine. I loved hearing how smart they thought he was or even that they thought he was cute. It could also be hard when people assumed we were a perfect couple. It's hard to explain that our problems are physical. In the first few months, the sex was unbelievable. It felt like it was part of the game. He'd spank my ass until it was raw and cherry red or slap me across the face while I was on top of him. And I could trust him to be rough with me, but stop before it actually went too far. It felt delicious and dizzying to have that kind of secret. To be the kind of couple who seemed mild but were completely unrestrained, who seemed responsible and professional but were savages underneath. Once I scratched his back so hard that his blood trickled down my fingernails and into my palms. Sometimes he called me a slut or a dirty whore when we were having sex, and it was all still part of the fun. Didn't like it when he put his hands around my neck and squeezed one night when I refused to put on the blindfold. I didn't like it when he called me a dumb bitch for struggling to get up and trying to walk out and leave him naked from the waist down. I didn't like it when he reminded me that I was nothing without him, that I owed him for taking care of me, and that I wouldn't have the same life or be the same person without him. I didn't like it when he scraped my breasts and mangled the back of my thighs the next night with the wire from his fishing rod after he was done riding me from behind. I was tied to the bed on my knees facing the wall, and after he came, he told me he had more for me. He dug the hook into the back of my left knee, and I had a limp for three days after. When my leg was healed, I moved back in with my parents, believe it or not. I couldn't tell my mom why. She was always so impressed with him, and I didn't think she'd believe me anyway. Fraser's the kind of guy who makes a show out of catching spiders when he finds them in the house and putting them outside instead of killing them. Plus, he's sophisticated and successful. My dad might not know who Etro or Paul Smith were, but he could tell Fraser's shirts were expensive. Fraser sent me roses every day for two weeks. He sent me poems and cards. One day, four guys in red and white striped suits showed up to sing an a cappella version of Brian Adams' Heaven. I still didn't really want to talk to him. He came over one day and talked to my mom for two hours in the kitchen. She came into my room, urging him, me to talk to him. In her hands was a red velvet box with a two-carat diamond ring inside. I felt like an insect who'd been caught in a spider's web for long enough to know that I was about to be eaten. I left with him, and we spent almost 48 hours locked in our apartment, mostly in our room, just talking things out. We only left when one of us needed the bathroom, and a couple of times, Fraser went out on the balcony to have a cigarette. I don't remember eating anything at all. I realized, he said, that I just can't live without you, Bethany. You're my everything. Let me tell you something. It wasn't a perfect scene from a romantic comedy. I find that if you actually get one of those gallop into the sunset sort of moments, those are the kind of things you can't usually trust. When I look back on it, I don't dislike the way it happened. Something about it felt genuine. Alyssa looked at me, still waiting for an answer. I thought about a TV show I saw the other day at the gym. You know the one? about the advertising executive is all charming and debonair. I watch it sometimes because something about him reminds me of Fraser. There's something irresistible about him. Anyway, on the episode I saw, he said something like, true happiness 
is the moment is the is not the moment you're satisfied it's the moment before you want more happiness i thought about our wedding day so full of raw hope and possibility and i told her that it was the best day of my life definitely and i smiled big before i turned away i also made sure to tell her she could hang out with us anytime and i was sure she'd meet someone great soon I thought about asking Fraser if he'd consider looking into one of those all-inclusive package deals to the Caribbean. We could probably use a change of scenery for a week. Thank you. Rowdy for Bardia. <laughs> <laughs> Bardia, you can thank me for that later. Okay. Bardia Sinai. <laughs> We're really good friends, and I still can't say his last name. Bardia Sinai was born in Tehran, Iran, and lives in Toronto. His poems have recently appeared or are forthcoming in The Fiddlehead, Maisonneuve, The Walrus, as well as the anthologies Best of the Best Canadian Poetry in English, Tightrope Books 2017, and another dysfunctional cancer poem, Mansfield Press 2018. Please welcome Bardia. All right. Although I am always talking, there is an air among these miniature plateaus of childhood tucked away. Sunlight disappears here like cheddar into a dog's mouth. This is my desert island mood, as free as surely I have ever felt. I have the muted, toothless hunger of a worm dividing itself, the eagerness to occupy your disregard. Love, apart from its ordinary dimension, is occasional punctuated like the weather with fatigue. My million contrary espousals, my regimen of sleeping in and clear city streets betray a life lived outside of any local sense. I have conquered vast provinces. I have tasted every species on the mountain. Um, thank you guys for having me here. I'm gonna read, uh, I have this chapbook. I made it myself. Uh, this poem from the chapbook is called uh, Why We Eat Figs. Long ago, when bread ripened on the breadfruit tree and animals spoke the language of men, there lived a widow with three impetuous sons. Many ages ago, when God lusted after mortals in the body of a swan, a sailor who was thought to have perished at sea appeared in his village carrying an enormous egg. They asked him, whence did you acquire such an enormous egg? One day, a plowman was struck by lightning and vanished. His wife was sick with grief. The liver of a rabbit did not cure her. She was not cured by the fruit of the tree of forgetfulness or the song of the enchanted lute. The shepherd visited her. She was visited by wise men, holy men, and even the king. Her cries became so haunting that they locked her in a tower with a fig-shaped dome. This is why we eat figs on the night of the harvest moon, why we open our doors on the Day of Atonement. 
This next poem is, and these poems come from various things. That last one was inspired by my friend Andrew Brooks, who is a friend of many of ours. He lent me this book of Korean folk tales. Um, so that inspired the last one. This next one is inspired by a, an internet comment I saw in an article about the migrant crisis, I think on The Guardian. It's called Dawn of the Living. Cunning, barbaric, choleric, with values that are questionable or dreadfully obscure, they are coming here in droves, literal hordes, to grope and or cover up our women, to convert and marry our children to their children and muddy the proverbial waters on a scale unseen in centuries. From all seven corners in the squalid holds of ships on trains, crossing pristine frozen plains on foot, crowded in makeshift rafts like scorpions on a turtle's back, they are coming for a free bus pass, for monthly stipends or months in jail, restoring ancient institutions, shadow chambers, to dictate conformity of speech and dress till they are us, to occupy and estrange us from ourselves. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> uh, this next poem is called An Example. After he captures the city of Kerman in 1794, Aga Muhammad Khan, whose castration at a young age should have invalidated his claim to the throne, decides to make an example of the city's inhabitants for sheltering the previous Shah. Men are decapitated, children blinded, and women carried off into slavery. The tyrant orders his men to gouge out the eyes of each man. The tyrant erects a pyramid of skulls. 40,000 eyeballs are arranged in a pile. Blind children wander to neighboring villages to tell what happened in Kerman or die of thirst. Blind beggars throughout the empire tell the story of Kerman's blind children for a meal how they must be sheltered in secret, out of sight, for the new monarch will not tolerate opposition. A period of relative stability ensues. Um, all right, this is the last one I'm gonna read from the chapbook. This one is inspired by a story written by my friend Andre Forger, who's sitting right there. Andre wrote a story called The Lower Registers. If you wanna look it up, just Google that. It's about this non-existent underwater organ called the hydroorganon. Um, so this poem is called Song for the Song of the Hydroorganon. A new instrument is being built, the largest of its kind in the world, off the coast of the bay where the reef once lay. You've gone about it all wrong with your soaring hymns with the great pipes of the organs reaching up. Stare at the sun all you want. God dwells beneath the sea. My sin is I never learned to swim. Fearing the long, low note, how water siphoned every word into a pouch of air, I'd flounder there until my father fished me out. He said, we know from birth how not to drown. And I searched for that memory like the crown of a sunken king, but always came up empty, gasping, with the sound of water draining from my ears.
I'm going to read. Uh, the next few poems are set in Iran. I'm just going to say that now, and then many questions you have are probably related to that. <laughs> this first one's an old one. It's called Nose Job. He plays with the prayer stone, a skipping rock, spaceship, cold in the flat of the hand. It calms him. I'll try to explain this. A three-story tenement, concrete, three channels, and the prayer call at dusk. The plastics man hollers from his pushcart in the courtyard, two juice jugs for a white, denuded doll with no hair or discernible features. Uptown men get their eyebrows done, nose jobs on a per capita scale. How European. The Basij drive through the districts at times. At times, it's like someone's paying teenagers to smoke. Mandates on hairstyles are roundly ignored. Sanctions drive rations discreetly. One hardly notices off-brand colas, chocolate bars cut with paraffin wax, trifles, really. After all, his sister rides the bus alone from school. His uncle brings photos from Europe, the onion domes at Nevsky, seltzer, powdered drinks with an astringent finish, metal mouth. He keeps gum in the tin, off-brand chiclets. He keeps cracking his knuckles, clicking his tongue on his molars. It calms him, believe me. His parents were communists, briefly. His uncle, a teacher, fought the Iraqis. Boys, really. They played volleyball over the trenches. Can you imagine? Shot in the back of the knee of all places, a limp, a comet trail scar. It shows when he's sitting, and the little boy pokes it. How should I put this? so he can believe it. It's like the burgeoning crook in his nose, a crease in the spine of a book that sits in his palm. He feels it. He stays up, counting backwards from 40. Uh, this next one is set in the north of Iran, which places, uh, the people generally call it Shomal, which just means the north. It covers various cities. Shomal. In that place, you could dig for water with a spoon. Mountains overlooked the south. A sea corralled the north. We lived there for a year among the citrus groves and carousels near the luxury hotel where foreigners with bald, veiny arms played tennis. I planted pomegranate seeds and didn't go to school. I found a beach stone that looked like a fried egg and tasted like the beach. I can't explain the details I remember, but like guilt, they seize me in subsiding waves. This one is called Plain Clothes. Safe now outside the committee building, he feels no shame. Why should he? There are no Madonna cassettes stashed in his glove box, no satellite dish on his roof. He has done nothing wrong and told them as much. Instead, decrying the immodesty of today's fashions, lipstick, loose headscarves, men with their eyebrows done. These youth don't remember life before the revolution when people dressed with impunity but couldn't remark on the weather without fear of an undercover agent dragging them off to pull out their fingernails. When it behooved you to forget names, entire conversations, lest they be pried from you, in some dark chamber. Even then, 
He questioned those who dressed conspicuously. Whose attention were they seeking? What were they trying to get him to say? We'll do a few new ones. Um, this first one, for an assignment last fall, I had to read a bunch of poems. I didn't have to. This was my chosen topic. I read a bunch of poems written by war criminals. Um, um, Saddam Hussein wrote poems and novels that no one read. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, presumably. Radovan Karadzic wrote a lot of poems. He actually had a master's from Columbia. Um, and so those were among the ones that I'd read. Uh, and so after, sometime after that, I wrote this poem. It's called, Nothing is Forbidden. Only the truth will stand on the other side, and I am truth itself. I am the president's interminable necktie, his unabridged dickens, the words you have been reading and reading into. When poets say, the air could not reveal itself without you, Lark, remember that I am the air and the Lark. <laughs> Think of me more faithfully and often than you breathe. I will allow you to stare at the sun. I will dismantle the sun into sleep, color, and food. Your sickness, the violence of your existence is parenthetical to my delight. I rewrite it as I please. Come forth into unguarded pastures, but not because you are free. Um, this next one is a villanelle. So there are a couple of lines that you're going to hear repeated. It's called adoration. The tentative being, translucent and exhibiting adaptive boundaries, quivers. It touches everything once. Scales form rapidly. Hello, sweetheart. This is not the travesty of early trials. Isn't that right? Those steep incisors bear no semblance of their design, no memory of who severed them from the tentative being. Translucent and exhibiting adaptive boundaries, it deserves the pleasantest stimuli, feathers, glittering fibers. Like a pomegranate, it grows isometrically and does not sleep. Hello, sweetheart. This is not the travesty of early trials. Nourish it with oyster shells and lime, swan eggs to modulate its pitch, to make immutable what is currently tentative. Being translucent and exhibiting adaptive boundaries is only natural until its personality begins to cohere, when the first demanding groan issues from its hollow chamber. Hello, sweetheart. This is not the travesty of early trials. This is not the oblong rug with eyes, the horned flower spraying blood, or the strip of skin inching back toward its dish to die. Only a tentative being, translucent and exhibiting adaptive boundaries. Hello, sweetheart. This is not the travesty of early trials. Um, and there's got one more. Thank you guys again for having me. This is a short one. It's called The Scorpion and the Frog. The ladies take their tea into the parlor. The neighbor calls her tabby, Maurice, in from the courtyard. The language exercises carry on into the afternoon. When we sleep, we never trust a lazy dog to guard the hen house. Is this correct? My, what a buttery loaf. 
who can say what the tale of the scorpion and the frog teaches us about trust? When we dance, when we pace with grace, we land on the soft sea. But it's that element of risk, a sheet of air under our feet, that makes the frog say, okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Bardia. I never learned to swim either. I, uh, <laughs> tell that to me at, when I was seven. Uh, thank you for that. This is going to be a real, real treat. Bo Dixon is a multi-award winning actor, playwright, composer, director, and producer. His writing credits include Once a Flame, From Here to Africville, Factory Theater, Beneath Spring Hill, the Maurice Ruddick Story, Thousand Island Vibrant Theater, Lunchbox Theater, Theater Collingwood, which received three Dora nominations and was awarded for Best New Play and Best Individual Performance, two Calgary Critics nominations winning for Best Solo Performance, and a Betty Mitchell nomination. Dixon is also a K.M. Hunter Award finalist. He has four solo albums and was recently inducted into Peterborough's pathway of fame for his leadership in the arts. You can see more at Bo Dixon, B-E-A-U-D-I-X-O-N dot com. Please welcome Bo Dixon. Oh dear Lord, is there anyone there? Anyone to hear this miner's prayer? Trapped underground when the great bump roared In the cold black dark, can you hear me, Lord? Trapped in the dark two miles underground Two miles underground when the great bump roared, oh dear Lord, hear this miner's prayer. Is there anyone there? Is there anyone there? Please, God, help me. Say this isn't the end. Tell me I'll see my wife, my kids, my freedom. Who's there? Are you reading us, Toronto? Toronto, is this, are you getting a frequency? Toronto, Toronto, are you, okay, three, two, one. This is Jack McNeil coming to you live on this cold day of October 23rd, 1958 in Spring Hill, Nova Scotia. News has just come in that an earth tremor has caused a bump in North America's largest coal mine, the Cumberland Number 2. It is now reported that 174 men are trapped thousands of feet below the Earth's surface. It is hard to say how many are alive and how many are dead. Even though this small community is used to catastrophic events, the mining disaster of 1938, the mining disaster of 56, but this is the largest disaster ever. As we keep you posted in the current events, we ask that you hope and pray for the family and friends who are waiting anxiously for the outcome of their husbands, their brothers, their fathers, their sons. This is Jack McNeil for CBC News, Spring Hill, Nova Scotia.
I'm Maurice. Maurice Reich. I'm 46 years old, and I'm an African-Canadian living in Spring Hill, Nova Scotia, with my wife and 12 kids. Some people call me the singing miner. <clears throat> way, way down, digging down in the deep. I'm a coal-digging daddy, digging coal for my keep, filling box after box. That's how I end my pay. It's down underground, I sing my blues away. <laughs> Other folks call me a mulatto, person of mixed race. Some people call me a n But I prefer you just call me Maurice. Yep, ever since I can remember, I wanted to be a coal miner. Well, I, I should say, before I was a coal miner, I wanted to be a musician. I'd be that kid at the back of the church waiting for the choir things to be called out. I knew them all by heart. But when you have a wife and 12 kids, it's a big work. What would I do to put them dreams aside? So I became a coal miner. And see me wrestling with one of my kids. Where you going? Come here. Get you can find me hiding out in the back room, singing and writing songs on my trusty guitar. On some nights, well now, if the night was just right, I'd tiptoe to my little one's bedroom and sing them to sleep. Go to sleep, call me, Sylvia and Valerie. Close your eyes, Alder, Ellen and Dean. Sweet dreams, Chicky. Revere and little Leah, catch the train to dreamland, Jesse and Iris. And don't forget to bring along our brand new little baby, sweet little sister, darling Katrina. My name is Valerie. <coughs> I'm the daughter of Norma and Maurice Ruddick. <coughs> I'm 10 years old, and I'm the third oldest of my 11 brothers and sisters. Dad said he caught Mom's eye as soon as he met her. Mom said she couldn't resist his trim build, pencil-thin mustache, pomaded hair parted in the middle. <coughs> Mom said Dad always courted her like a gentleman, always showing up at her front door dressed like Mr. Hollywood. Some people thought that Daddy was an odd duck. Mom said he was mostly the men, jealous of his good looks and confidence. Mom would always say, call him what you want, but he's a proud man of color. <coughs> Dad said it was always important to keep her head up high and work harder than the next person. Some women would chase after Daddy, always flirting and winking at him. Daddy would show up to supper dances wearing a green suit jacket and red pants, and Mom would have to shoo women off with a stick. Get your hands off of him. He hasn't worked hard enough to win me over, let alone the likes of you. <laughs> yeah, when Norm and me first married, we cooked a big turkey, and we wished on the wishbone of the turkey. A lot of people wish on it, eh? So I closed my eyes. Wished on the wishbone of the turkey. Picked the biggest bone. Norma asked me what I wished for. And I said, I wish we'd have 13 kids. You what? <laughs> we nearly broke. We just got married. We can hardly afford the roof we're living under. And you couldn't wish for one thing, but you choked. You choked. You I thought you wanted to 
to be a musician. <laughs> I did, I did. Sometimes life happens to you. Way, way down. With the shovel and the pick. I'll be digging coal till I'm old and sick. And I tell my kids, I do it all for you. If I dig coal, you won't have to dig coal too. <laughs> my kids would come home from school just in time to see me off to work. My 10-year-old daughter, Valerie, quickly set her bags on the kitchen table, started making me a hot tea and a sandwich. She'd fill my lunch can with a tasty honey banana sandwich and put my boots by the door. Oh. All right, kids. Come and see your daddy off to work now. Come on, come on, give me a kiss, Greg. <laughs> hey, where you going? Get over here. Oh, oh. <laughs> I love you too. Oh, now, Dean. Dean, now don't you worry. Daddy's going to be home soon. As I made my way out the front porch, I took one last smell of enormous fresh bread and potato stew. Mm. It was a beautiful Indian summer as the brown and rusty leaves danced around her feet as she was hanging up the laundry. I reached in for one kiss before I headed to the number two Cumberland Mile. Hey, Millie! Did, did Frank fix your car yesterday? Millie doesn't care much for talking. At least to me, she don't. Figure I've known her for 10 years, still can't get a smile out of her. Well, tell him, tell Frank if he doesn't fix it by tomorrow, I'm coming over there myself to fix it. <laughs> oh, well, one of these days. Hey, Tom, great game yesterday, baby. Way to knock it out of the ballpark. Just graduated high school. Figure he's going straight to the big leagues. Well, here we are, the number two Cumberland mine. Now, the lamp cabin is where us miners file in at the beginning of each shift. 174 men reported to work that day. We change in and out of our work clothes at the wash house. It's a, well, it's like a locker room before a big game. Yeah, yeah, we're all a team here, always chatting, talking about our last shift or hunting trip. Chewing the fat, you might say. Doug Jukes was a young fellow with a long face and blackened teeth. Uh, he talked a lot, but I didn't mind. Yeah, I like the number two mine. See them all mine. Don't know how many more years she's going to give us. They keep telling us to set them walls in straight lines instead of, instead of splitting them. Well, spitting out the rock. Yeah, well, the company don't care. They just send us back down there and tell us to dig. Dougie was always complaining about those stone and lumber pillars, what us miners call packs. See, packs are the walls that we build to keep the tunnels sturdy as we dig. Frank Hunter came walking in the wash house. As if on cue. For the love of Christmas, Dougie, what are you going on about? You want the boss to hear ya? I'm talking about the number two mine, Frank. Don't know how many more years she's going to give us. And the old timers know she's not happy no more. Ain't never liked the number two like I did the number four. And it's even worse now. Oh, none of us are too proud of waving, lining up them walls, setting them up straight. Heck, it's not a bad thing. If you're alive after you hear a bug, it's a good thing. It means it's uh, loosening up the coal, making it easier for digging. Ain't that right, boys? <laughs> well, if I had the brains and education like some other fellers, I'd quit. Well, why don't you get some brains and quit already? Gee, Frank, what else am I going to do? Where else am I going to get a job that's better than this? I said nothing. I just stood there. 
Listen to Frank and Dougie go on. I wore a smile like I always did. Old man Percy Rector was huddled in the corner. Hey, Percy, you know the number two. What do you think of her? Old man Percy Rector was admired by most of us coal miners for his deep knowledge of coal mining. He'd been in the number two for 20 years. He had this natural talent in which he could pry off a chunk of rock and discover coal with very little effort. He had all the tricks, knew all the secrets to survive in the mine. He was a burly man, loved just chewing tobacco and said very few words. Uh, he's an old mine boom. But when the big one comes, she'll take us out when she goes. And that was that. Old man Percy Rector just walked out, leaving me with Dougie and Frank bickering about Lord knows what. Each day we hop into the trolley. It takes about 20 minutes to make it down to the first level. Hot dog, it was always a treat to find out who I was working with. Working a double Dougie, Frank, Pe Pepperdine, Curry Smith, uh, Percy, <laughs> let's see, that's me, that's six. Go get Clark, hurry up, you're gonna be late. Seven of us. Seven of us would pile into the trolley and make our way down to the seventh center of the earth. Down the shaft we go. Twenty minutes. <laughs> Wasn't always a pleasant ride. Sometimes it seemed to last a lifetime. So I like to pass the time with a song or two, you know, start the start the day right. Yeah. Number two mining, Cumberland County. Filling our hands with a good Lord's bounty. Hey. Turning coal back, knocking the sun is gold. Working on our knees till we're sick and old. Swinging a pick where the sun don't shine. Where are we, boys? Cumberland County down, number two mine. Woo! Number two mine in Spring Hill Town. Got the toughest miners for miles around. Oh, they'll scratch at the coal till the fingers bleed. With the house full of hungry bellies to feed. Pockets are empty, what do you do? Tell them, fellas! Go to Spring Hill Town down old number two. It's black and then cold down here. So black they named the color out. Coal black. <laughs> the younger fellas down here dream of bigger things, better things. The older fellas, mine has been working down here most of their lives, figure they're in it for the long haul. Me, I figure I'll die down here working in the mine. Number two mine, one glorious hole. And Cumberland Railroad owns my soul. They're the ones guarantee my pay, cause I plan to get rich $11 a day, $11 a day. Tell me where do I sign? Tell them boys. Cumberland County down number two mine. Thank you. For more information on the Pivot Readings, go to pivotreadings.ca.